All right. Well, we certainly are thankful for our students uh, headed uh, to Infuge a couple weeks ago and how uh, they not only were poured into, but they poured out of themselves by serving uh, in the communities uh, near where the camp was. And so uh, we're thankful for how God is at work in the life of our student ministry and in our children's ministry. And it's that time of the year where I want to invite you to be a participant in what God is doing uh, in the children and students of our church. Uh, God is br- bringing tremendous uh, growth, uh, not only numerically, but spiritually. And uh, we are in in need of some people to help uh, to serve for the upcoming uh, school year. So you can find out more about that uh, in the handout you received this morning or uh, in our weekly email. And uh, Lucas and Alec, our children's minister and student minister, would love to answer any questions that you might have about how you can serve anywhere from birth to senior in high school, which depending on who you are, one of those might sound really scary. Um, but uh, we have a need for all those ages, and so we'd love for you to be a part of what God is doing. In addition to what God is doing uh, in the children and students who are here with us, uh, we have a desire to be a blessing to our community and the children in our community. And so we are partnering this year once again with Edge Elementary to help them uh, with their back-to-school supplies. And so you can find more information again in the handout or the email that goes out. But we'd uh, love for you to help us uh, to bless Edge Elementary. Uh, we'd hope for such a response to their needs needs that uh, it's overwhelming to them, uh, that there's more than they can actually need. And so please participate in that if you're able. Uh, Let me say to you, if you're visiting with us today, if you're watching online for the first time, that we're grateful to have you with us as our guest. And we would love to know who you are. Uh, You can connect with us in one of two ways. You can text the word connect uh, to the number that you see on the screen. And one of our connect team members will then follow up with you this week. Or you can stop by one of the welcome areas uh, on campus on your way off, and the team there would love to greet you and help you learn how you can get connected into the life of our church. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open open it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, as we continue our time through the Gospel of Mark, and specifically, we continue our time in Mark, chapter 13. As we're looking at Mark 13, we've been talking about um, the end of the world. And uh, how, you know, really what we know about the end of the world. So it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Um, And so this series has shown us some things that Jesus said to the disciples. Um, And some of it, you know, we can kind of understand for sure what he's saying. And some of it, and not just in Mark 13, but anytime you're dealing with verses that talk about, you know, the last days, uh, there can be a lack of clarity. And I've shared several times throughout this series, uh, Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message, which I, th- which I think is a very good summary statement of our unifying belief about the last days. I'll read that again. It says, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous and the resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Now, there is more in the Bible uh, about the last days, and we might have uh, areas of disagreement or just areas where we lack clarity uh, because, you know, it's sometimes hard to discern uh, what the Bible is saying about some of these things. And with our text that we're looking at today, 
we have to put bifocals on and we have to look at it through two lenses. What could be near, so what is happening immediately in the context of Jesus saying these things and what might be happening in the far. And when you read prophecy, when you read predictions or, you know, explanations of things that are gonna happen, sometimes they seem way closer than they actually are. And so for the disciples, certainly that was something that they dealt with, uh, that some of the things they were learning about actually were not happening as soon as they would happen. That's true in the Old Testament. A lot of the things that were prophesied about in the Old Testament referring to Christ, uh, the people thought were gonna happen in their lifetime or soon, and they just didn't. And that's true for uh, the history of the church. In fact, you know, we have for a long time as Christians thought some of these things would happen and they still don't happen to the point that, you know, you begin to wonder, are these things actually ever going to happen? It's kind of like walking on the beach and if you see something in the horizon or in the distance uh, on the beach, uh, it looks a lot closer than it actually is. I can remember being uh, a teenager uh, or, or, or maybe a preteen and being on the beach at night and telling my family I was gonna run to this building I saw down on St. Augustine Beach and they're like, all right, have fun. And I started running and running and running and it was not getting any closer. And so that's kind of how it could feel in looking at some of these things in uh, the Bible. In our text, we need to understand what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the temple being destroyed. And then the disciples ask him, so when is this going to happen? Mark 13, verse three and four says, after Jesus sat, talked about the temple being destroyed, he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Now, I've explained throughout the last few weeks that I think some of the things Jesus talks about in Mark 13 have actually um, already happened. And, and, and so they did happen in their lifetime. Jesus said, this generation won't pass away till these things take place. And so I, I believe some of those things happen. But not everything that Jesus talks about at least fully happens or even happens at all in the time of Jesus. And, and there's some debate. There's some debate about these things we're gonna read. Let me, let me just read Mark 13, 23 through 26. Listen to what Jesus says. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So I'm simplifying this, but there are three views about this and other things in the Bible. Some believe this has all already happened. So they believe everything you read about in prophecy about the end times, if you want to call it that, has already actually taken place, whether it's literally or figuratively. And again, that could be different. Now, some believe some of it has happened and some of it hasn't happened. And then some believe none of it has happened yet. And then I would say some would believe it happens twice. So there's one fulfillment and another fulfillment. And honestly, there's a lack of certainty about this. So what I wanna focus on are three certainties about the return of Christ. And then I wanna ask three questions of us about the return of Christ. So let's start with those three certainties about the return of Christ. Here's the first certainty. We are asked to live based on what we know. So we are asked to live 
based on what we know. I want you to notice that Jesus says in verse 23, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The word but there is intentionally used as a contrast. Jesus is talking in Mark chapter 13 about all these things are going to take place. And then he says, but be on guard. So you don't fully understand about when and how all these things I'm saying are gonna happen, but here's what you need to focus on. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. I have forewarned you. So he is dealing with the certainty. Now, there's some uncertainty that people have about some of the teachings here of Jesus. And it is okay to investigate this, to try to decipher a little more about what exactly he is saying but not at the neglect of what you know that he has called you to do. I think that this is something that is problematic for Christians often. And it's not just with the last days or the end of the world. It's with the sovereignty and free will of God. Where people would say, I can't fully understand how God is sovereign and knows everything and his plan is gonna happen and people have the freedom to you know, make their own choices. And, and so I can't fully understand that. Or people might say, you know, well, what about the person who hasn't heard the gospel, right? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so people would say, well, I have a hard time with that because there are people who, they grow up and they never hear of Jesus. What does God do with them? And so, and, and I, get, I get that. But what I usually would say to that person is, okay, and that's an issue we could talk about and debate and look at scripture, but you've heard of the gospel, what are you doing with it? And so we, we kind of like to stay over here in this uncertainty. You know, I think a lot of times in our lives, things are the way they are, and we start to ask, like, whose fault is it, right? Like, is it my parents' fault? Is it, is it my fault? Is it the culture's fault? Is it somebody else's fault? And so we kind of like get hung up on these issues where there's a lack of certainty, and, and we, we really deflect from maybe an issue we need to face. Like, for example, it may not be our fault, but now it's our responsibility. There's, we're foster parents. There's a child in our house who a lot of her issues, they're not my fault. They're really not even her fault, but she is my responsibility now. That's clear. And so it's clear that I should care for her and what I should do. And I, and I think we need to focus more on what we know to be clear that we should do than getting hung up in the uncertainties. And I think it's just a common tactic to avoid the issue. This is why in every political debate, you know, when somebody, would, somebody who's pro-life says something, somebody who's pro-choice is gonna say, well, then what about, you know, you don't let refugees in. I'm like, what? Or somebody who's, you know, for, you know, some kind of regulations on gun control, oh, but you let babies be killed. I'm like, what, what are you doing? Like, Talk about the issue. And it's just a, it's a common tactic to avoid the issue because we haven't grown up. Sorry, that sounded really harsh, but because we haven't grown up. So um, none of my children currently, when they were six, so they don't get sad and think I'm making fun of them in front of their friends. Um, when they were six, they would, you know, you would ask them to do something and they would say, I mean, like their immediate response was, yeah, well, my brother didn't do that or, well, so-and-so was doing this arbitrary thing that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. And I'm like, face, please don't look at my child like I think they're the stupidest person on the earth right now. And say, what does that have to do with the fact that your dirty socks are on the table where we're about to eat dinner? Just move them off the table like your mother said. 
And so they like just would deflect from this issue into these other issues. And I'm telling you that adults, we do that all the time. Because we're just trying to avoid dealing with the issue that we should deal with. And I think Christians do this where we get hung up in these things that we don't fully understand. And yet God has said, you need to live based on what you know. So what are you doing now with what you know? That's the question. Okay, another certainty is this. We will suffer tribulation. We will suffer tribulation. So in verse 24, it says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Again, another contrast here. And what F.F. Bruce, who's a New Testament scholar, says Jesus is doing here, because in Mark 13, Jesus is talking about these difficult days, and he's talking about these false Christs who are going to arise and try to get you to follow them. F.F. Bruce says, this is a contrast by Jesus between the false Christ who are misleading and the true Christ whose glory is clear. You see, there's a false message that's being proclaimed in their day by many different people, and I would say is often proclaimed today, and that is, if you follow me and my teaching, you won't have tribulation and you won't have trials. This is a false gospel. This is a false understanding of Jesus. This is false teaching. And I love you, but if you're following God because you think you won't have any tribulation and any trials and everything will be how you want them on earth, you have a foundational misunderstanding of the Bible. In fact, I heard one pastor say, I don't remember who said it originally, but a pastor's job, or at least a part of a pastor's job, is to prepare people for suffering. It's to help people understand that in the midst of the chaos and the trial and the world falling apart, Christ is enough. That whatever God does or allows to happen in your life, you know that the testing of your faith, faith develops perseverance. But perseverance must finish its work in you so that you will be mature and complete. If you're person that you're going to for inspiration and Bible teaching, I know it's not in this church, is just telling you how to have your life away where there is no trials. They are preaching a false gospel. Jesus himself said, not you won't have trouble if you follow me, but in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So when we think about tribulation and whatever that is, just understand if you're hoping you avoid tribulation in your life, that's not a reality for you. Christians are almost guaranteed suffering. So Jesus says in those days, which is a phrase uh, that actually doesn't necessarily refer to literal days. It's a phrase that's used often in the Greek and in the New Testament as a metaphor. An example of this would be Matthew 6, 34, when Jesus says each day has enough trouble of its own. He uses the same phrase, himera, which he uses for in those days. So this is just a, a figurative you know, explanation of a time period. But he says in those days, after that tribulation, um, thipsis, which means you know, a period of tribulation that would happen. Now, the original readers probably thought the fall of Jerusalem was a total fulfillment 
of this tribulation. But I, I would just say that that has proven not to be true. Um, but it's referring to a time of intense affliction and persecution. And that tribulation will be something that is a part of the life of the church. Now, look at what Jesus says here. He says, after that, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And he goes on to say in verse 25, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, this might refer to a natural phenomenon. And some people have tried to say, hey, there's a period of time and where this actually happened, and so that's what Jesus was talking about. Others would say, hey, this is literally gonna happen, um, you know, one day whenever Jesus is, you know, this is fulfilled. But what you need to understand this is the early readers of this, they would have immediately in reading this verse thought of the Old Testament and connect it to the day of the Lord that was talked about in the Old Testament. I'll give you one example. Isaiah chapter 13, verse nine and 10. says, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as it is rising and the moon will not shed its light. So this day of the Lord is referred to in the Old Testament multiple times, and there's disagreement on this. Is this something that happened repeatedly throughout history? And, you know, it's just capturing kind of the, the, the feeling of these days of the Lord, or is this referring to an ultimate day of the Lord that has not yet to come? Or is it referring to a day of the Lord that has already come? Or is it both? I mean, another explanation of this is later on in Isaiah chapter 24, Verse 21 through 23, it says, on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven and heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They'll be gathered together as a prisoner in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. And whenever Luke is talking about what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He, he uses similar languages. The reality is we really don't know for sure. But what I think it is showing us is that there is this tribulation that is a part of the life of a believer. We don't know for sure about that. And there is a day of the Lord coming when God sets things right, when he judges. And we may not fully understand that, but it is true. And so we will go through this trial in anticipation for this day that Jesus, as the church in the anticipation of this day that Jesus is gonna make everything right. And the third thing that is certain here and that is certain about the return of Christ is this. We will see Christ return as the eternal king. Verse 26 says, and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is part of what has been communicated through the days of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Daniel referred to the Ancient of Days. Joel referred to this day of the Lord coming. Jesus is the Son of Man to one whom the, to, to whom the Ancient of Days gives glory and power and the one designated to receive worship as the divine king. And the text says they will see, which means all will see. Jesus coming with power and great glory, not on rain clouds, 
but on clouds revealing the Shekinah glory. I've experienced that a lot of things in life are underwhelming. These moments we look up to, these places we go, these things we see, they're underwhelming. I remember when I was in college, my family, we took a trip to uh, Italy and one night, you know, we rode the train to go see the Leaning Tower of Pisa, you know, because I'd heard about it and I was excited about it and I got there and it was like, oh, like it's a little tower that's leading in Pisa. It's really not that impressive at all. And other people, I've never been to the Louvre, but people have told me like they went and seen the Mona Lisa and, you know, it's this famous painting and they go there and they're like, oh, it's kind of small. And it's just really a painting of a woman. And so there's this, this hype around these things, right? And like, and like you're in this moment where it's, it's this thing that's, kind of everybody in the world knows about, but it's underwhelming. And I don't know if you ever anticipated big days and big moments, but a lot of times they can be underwhelming. Here is what I'm telling you. When Jesus comes back, it will not be like that. It will not be underwhelming. And everything that we focus on when we think about all these things must be centered around this. D. Edmund DeBear says this, central to the whole picture is the reality of the objective, personal return of Christ in glory. That's what's central to all of this, is the objective, personal return of Christ in glory. He will return as eternal king. We are asked to live based on what we know. And so, here are three questions for you about the return of Christ. Number one, do you really believe he will return? Do you really believe that Jesus will return? Do you believe that he rose from the grave? And, and maybe you have questions about that. And I'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about how there were eyewitnesses to the account of Christ who were still alive in the days of the circulation of the New Testament who, who, who corroborated this. There were people who came to faith in Christ solely based on the resurrection of Christ who were not believers before this, uh, how there's evidence to support the, the, deni the, the silliness of some of the theories of why the tomb would be empty. But as a Christian, that we, are, we believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And if, if we don't believe he rose from the grave, and if you don't, you should eat, drink, and be merry. And you should be pitied if you aren't just eat, eating, drinking, and being merry and just enjoying your life. That's what you should do if you don't believe Jesus rose from the grave. But if you do believe Jesus rose from the grave, then you should hang on his every word. And he should be the king of your life. And yet many professing Christians live like Jesus did not rise from the grave. Perhaps even in this room, there are some of you who claim Christ and yet you're living just to eat, drink, and be merry. And so much of Jesus' teaching is about living in a way that he is coming back. He is coming back for his people in victory. Does that affect how you live your life. When I was, I, I think, 14, I know I wasn't driving yet. Uh, my parents wanted to go away for a night, and 
they decided that they would leave me at home overnight for the first time. And if you're thinking about doing that with your 14-year-old, I think you're not going to want to do that after what I tell you. And they decided, hey, we don't want James to be home alone. So one of my close friends who they knew really well, his family well, let's let him stay the night there at the house as well. And so my parents left. Now they're coming back. It's their house. You know, I have no job, nothing like that. So everything is theirs. But the minute they left, I completely forgot that they were coming back, that everything belonged to them, and that they had authority over my life. And so me and my friend, like, we're eating everything, we're doing everything, and we were like playing music and like jumping on the couches, and my friend just jumps on the back of my parents' couch and cracks the couch in half. And my parents came back. <laughs> and I realized my mom is going to be here today in the 11 o'clock service, and I don't know if she ever knew that's what happened because I'm not sure what story I told her about it. So y'all pray for me this afternoon. <laughs> but the moment they came back, you know, they're the authority. They're the one I answer to. They're the ones who I'm accountable to. Are you living your life like Jesus is returning as king? Second question. Is your focus on his return or the way he will return? So I, I don't know how familiar you are with the Jesus movement. But the Jesus movement was a movement where revival happened amongst evangelical Christianity in this country in the late 60s, early 70s, really, uh, kind of, you know, a little bit beyond that. But, um, and it happened really in response to the culture. The culture in the 60s was going progressive. They had no idea what 2022 would look like, but the culture was going progressive. The hippie movement had, you know, been going and really was losing steam, and a lot of people who saw the emptiness of, you know, the free love uh, movement uh, were, and, you know, and drugs were, were, were really receptive to the gospel. And so revival took place specifically amongst young adults. And God was really at work. But what happened with the Jesus movement is I believe it got off track and off course because people really started to get fascinated with the rapture and the end times and the second coming, and all of these things. And all of a sudden, yeah, there was a love for Jesus, but there was more of a fascination and focus on dates and times and circumstances. And all of a sudden, churches were formed, and leaders rose up, and conferences were held, and people were making predictions about when Jesus will return, and the signs of his return, and the movement lost gospel centrality. The movement lost where people needing to hear about the grace of Jesus was the main thing. It was no longer the main thing. And people were focused more on looking for the end. And they became obsessed with it. And people, you know, would become prideful about their understanding of the last days and end times. Listen, y'all, the phenomenon in heaven about the sun and the moon and the stars that's talked about in the Bible it might not be literal. And there are people who have made millions of dollars selling books about blood moons and what they mean. That's not Jesus-centric. That's man-exalting. And you know, every time there's a solar eclipse, people are like, oh, what does this mean? It means the moon goes in front of the sun. 
There's seven hurricanes this season. What's happening? The Gulf's really hot. That's what it means. Are we the Mayans? Like, this is 2022. We have enough knowledge and understanding of how we should be living our lives. And this isn't just about eschatology. This is also about soteriology, which is the sovereignty and free will of God, where people get obsessed with, I fully understand, you know, how it works. Or it's about ecclesiology, where people are like, my way of doing church is the way of doing church. Or pneumatology, which is how the Holy Spirit manifests himself today. And it's not that we shouldn't look into all these ologies that I just mentioned. In fact, you should. And any pastor who tells you you shouldn't, I think is, and just focus on the basics, I think is just trying to get you, is saying, just follow me and do what I say and don't read the Bible for yourself. And that's just as dangerous. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but here's what I'm saying is if we focus on soteriology, if we focus on ecclesiology, if we focus on whatever ology it is and Jesus as king isn't the takeaway, we're missing the point. If you come to a church service and you walk away and the main thing you walk away with isn't Christ has come once and for all to make us right with him and he's coming back to rescue us and redeem us and make all things new. If you go into a Bible study and that's not what you walk away from, the focus is off. You are not preaching or teaching the Bible in its full context if the gospel isn't central to your preaching and teaching. It's not faithful. It's knowledge. It's pride-filled, and we need to focus on Jesus Christ. That's what teaching should be on and whatever the issue we might be getting to. So we can't lose focus of that. In Acts chapter 1, I got to slow down. Hold on. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, I want you to see what happens here. And, and it's actually just comforting for me because the disciples who are like asking Jesus, okay, tell us the signs. And Jesus is like, okay, this is how you need to live. Then Jesus dies and then he rises from the grave. And so disciples have seen all this and then he's about to send to heaven and Acts 1.6 says, so when they had to come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now look, it says in verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They're saying, because I I fully believe they were standing there like, okay, is he about to come back? What do we need to see? What are the signs that he's gonna come back? And they're like, go and do what he's told you to do because it's gonna be obvious when he comes back. Go and do what he's told you to do. It's gonna be obvious when he comes back. The third question is this. Does the return of Christ bring you fear and sadness or expectation and joy? Does the return of Christ bring you fear and sadness or expectation and joy? Matthew says something in his gospel that Mark doesn't include that I think is important here. Matthew 24, verse 30. Says Jesus says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Everybody is not going to be happy when Jesus comes back. 
there will be mourning. Because there are people who this life is it. They're living for this world. So Jesus coming back makes them sad. This isn't the thought for the believer. I heard somebody the other day talking about, you know, dying, you know, or Jesus coming back. They're like, I'm just not ready for him to come back yet. And I, I know what they mean. You know, we, we sing songs about this. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Or I think I know what they mean. But I think the more you abide in Christ, I love my family. I love the experiences I get in this life. But to be with Jesus is gain. Luke says that Jesus says in this account, in Luke chapter 21, verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When I'm coming back, your redemption is drawing near. Ray Ortland says, God has scheduled a day on the calendar when he will repay all the dirty deals all the broken promises, all the backstabbings of history. He will take care of Hitler. He will take care of injustice. He will take care of all the times when we read our newspapers and said, you know that person got off apparently scot-free. His justice will satisfy himself and will satisfy all who are present. Next week, we're gonna talk about how even the Son of Man doesn't know when this is going to happen. But we know this is going to happen. And our focus should be on what the implications of this are for our lives. I want to read to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18 in closing this morning. Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians, I think, is our encouragement today. He says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's he's saying, there's a lot that you don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty about life, but we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, those who've died, so that you don't grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We ought to encourage one another with these words. Yes, as Christians, we focus on the life, the birth, the life, the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, but we too ought to think of the return of Christ. When Christ will not come as a humble, suffering servant to die, but he will come as a risen, victorious king. When all who have died, who you have mourned their passing on this earth, will ri- who are of faith, will rise to be with Christ. When every injustice you've experienced because of prejudice or because of a person that was in your life who treated 
you as less than human will be made right, when all of the mental and emotional and physical disabilities will be no more, and when you as a person who have struggled on this earth to be faithful to Christ, but you love him and you know you love him, and yet you keep finding yourself not doing the things you know to do, when Jesus will make you mature and complete. This is a day that is coming. This is a day that will be obvious that all will see. And as Christians, the return of Christ is something we must proclaim and we must live our lives in light of. And so what we're gonna do now is we're gonna respond in worship. We're gonna respond in worship to the fact that Jesus is coming back as our King and that we ought to be living our lives in light of that. Jesus Christ, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your humility that God has come to the earth to be our sacrifice, that we might know him. But God, I thank you that you are not just a noble, caring, compassionate God, but you are a powerful God who rose from the grave, who ascended to the throne, who is the king, and who is coming back to make all things right and to redeem your people. So may we stand now with hands held high as our redemption is near because of the assurance of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing in response to our King Jesus.